The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I did want to say just a little bit about um, this item, Jamnia, and I have the year 68 uh, in connection with Jamnia. Jamnia happens to be a city um, near the coast, right here, which um, the name of the city is sometimes spelled differently. Yavne or Yavne with a V sometimes. And um, the reason that city is worth remembering is the following. In the middle of the war, there was a rabbi by the name of Yohanan ben Zakkai. We'll say a little bit about him later on. Uh, his name is um, on page 8 of your syllabus. If, um, if you go down to about uh, the middle there of historical development, you have the Tanaim. Under the Tanaim, you have Gamaliel, and then Yohanan ben Zakkai. Um, we'll get back to this individual uh, you know, in a couple of days. But he's the figure that is connected with Jamnia because he realized that the rebellion against the Romans was a waste of time, that it was only going to lead to the devastation of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And he was terrified, not so much for his own personal safety, but thinking about the future of Judaism. He was, he was a highly respected teacher. He managed to escape uh, Jerusalem in the year 68 and uh, went to that city of Jamnia and founded a center of Jewish studies, if you will. Now this was extremely important because many people believe that if it had not been for this particular move and the establishment of this uh, center or school or whatever you want to call it, uh, the further development of Judaism would have been far, far different from what it actually was. And it may have actually kind of died out, at least in Palestine. Of course, you still had a lot of uh, Jews in, in the East, in Babylon and so on, doing a lot of studying. And we'll also say a little bit about that uh, eventually, but um, without a temple, without sacrifices, how does Judaism survive? And in a sense, that was the big question that was being addressed by Yohanan and by his followers. And out of that 
difficult historical situation and, and the question, how can we worship God now? What does our faith mean? It was in that context that you have the development of what we call Rabbinic Judaism, which became mainstream Judaism. And, uh, you know, when people speak about what is Judaism, even though there are many forms of it, uh, it really goes back to this development of, of rabbinic, of the rabbinic uh, school of thought. And that is why this particular event is, uh, is important. We'll, we'll have to uh, talk about that in, in some detail later on. Now there is a sequel to all of this. Um, needless to say, the uh, Jews were not happy with the uh, events of uh, AD 70. But they were allowed to remain in the land and to have uh, some measure of activity. In the year 132, now that's uh, Quite a long time after AD 70. But uh, in the year 132, we have one last gasp, if you will, at freedom. And it has to do with the revolt, the so-called Second Jewish Revolt, under the leadership of this man here, Bar Kokhba. Bar Kokhba. Um, probably the name Bar Kokhba is a nickname. His real name may have been something like Bar Kosiba, and, uh, and the name Bar Kokhba in Aramaic means the son of the star, the son of the star. Many people believe that this was a nickname given to him by Jews who had a lot of messianic expectations in connection with this revolt. They viewed Bar Kokhba as something of a messiah. And uh, even though this particular revolt goes you know, well beyond our period, I think it's, it's rather important for you to, uh, to keep that in mind as kind of a, um, of the last event framing the New Testament period as far as the Jewish history is concerned. Because uh, the revolt began in 132. It was uh, put down in 135. And with the year 135, the Romans really lost patience with the Jews. In place of Jerusalem, now you have a totally pagan city, Ilia Capitolina it was named. Judaism was outlawed. And in effect, the Jewish state ceased to exist. The Jewish state ceased to exist in the year 135 and remained that way until it resuscitated in the year 1948 um, with, the, uh, with, the, with the modern Jewish uh, state of Israel being established. The revolt is also important in my way of thinking because it it signals in a, in a striking way what, what you might call the misplaced hopes of the Jewish people. Uh, the way in which they supported this revolt and seemingly 
uh, they viewed it as a, as a religious thing. Here's the Messiah for us. Even though on, only 100 years earlier, they had not recognized their true Messiah, who had walked the, uh, the land and, and had taught them the truth of, uh, of the gospel. So, um, thinking of that event in the year 132 to 135, as, as framing, as, you know, here's the uh, close parenthesis, if you will, of this Jewish period, uh, helps you to, uh, to see the events of the New Testament in, uh, in, in a broader light, if you will. And um, it's, it's a good thing to try to gain a, gain a sense for what is going on in the period of the New Testament, uh, keeping in mind uh, you know, how things are actually going to develop for the Jewish people who were listening uh, to the message of the gospel. Well, any questions about this period of Roman dominance? Yeah. We have no information about that, really. Somebody was asking me also about what happened to the Jewish church. And uh, here again, uh, we don't have a lot to go on. Uh, maybe in, in, your, in the course of ancient church history, you probably get some exposure to the little information we have. Uh, if you're really interested, of course, you have the, uh, the big work by Eusebius in the 4th century, the Ecclesiastical History, in which he does give some information about uh, some of these groups as well. But um, we just have nothing really concrete about the role that uh, the Christians may have played in, in uh, direct connection with the revolt. Yeah? Uh, you, you said previously that the calling of this was done all around 1870 or so. No, that, that they had the, uh, all, of, all of Paul's letters would have been written prior to yeah, actually, prior to even 66, yeah, yeah. So then how does knowing from 66 to 135 really help us that much? Well, as I was saying, uh, if, if you have, if you're looking at a period here, and um, you're able to frame it in the context of the broader, not just what was happening now, but what consequences some of these things had, I think the, the subsequent history in an indirect way, throws light on what was happening during this period as well. Yeah. Was there a particular we're looking at here for the diaspora? We'll be looking at that shortly. Yeah. But, uh, by the way, uh, although Paul's letters would have been finished by probably 63, 64, something like that, first of all, uh, there is some dispute in New Testament studies about the date of some of the other books of the New Testament. And there are some who think that a few of them may have been written after 70 AD. And uh, in the case of the book of Revelation, uh, the majority opinion, not, not unanimous by any means, but the majority opinion is that it was written in the 90s. And the same for the letters of, uh, and the, the Gospel of John, the letters of John, and the book of Revelation written toward the end of the uh, of the first century, and uh, some people place the uh, the book of Revelation in the context of the persecution under Domitian, who is the last emperor that I have listed there in the in the chart. Anything else? Yeah. Second 
I, you know, Judaizers is a, is a rather narrow term referring to Jewish Christians who are seeking to impose Judaism on Gentile Christians. Uh, here we're talking simply about Jews uh, with no connection with, with the church at all. Yeah. I don't recall. I don't recall what that was. They, you know, whenever you're you're dealing with uh, a fairly long period of time in about 15 minutes in class or whatever, lots of things that we pass over, and uh, it is important, and maybe this is uh, significant for you to to keep in mind, that although you know we have focused on these major revolts, there was you know virtually all the time something was brewing. Uh, either among the Jews in Israel, in, Ju in Judea, the Jews in Alexandria. Sometimes there were other kinds of um, uh, problems in other parts of the empire as well. Okay, let's move on then to the next uh, section of our material, dealing with literary and theological backgrounds. Um, the point is that we spent a little bit of time trying to get a sense of the historical milepost, if you will, giving you a sense of, of what's going on. And now we go back to this period and start looking at what people were thinking, what they were writing, and how that may affect the way in which we may read the New Testament. Now on page 6, I have a rather long um, supplementary bibliography and um, I will be referring to this uh, a few times. I'm going to start talking about paganism in just one moment and in connection with pagan religions the books that you may want to uh, take note of are the fourth item there by a fellow named Phil Oramo, A History of Gnosticism uh, the next one by Ferguson, The Religions of the Roman Empire, which even though it focuses on a period, on the period of A.D. 200, nevertheless, most of what he has to say about the pagan religions, uh, most of that is also applicable to the first century. Uh, the book by Macmullen, Ramsey Macmullen, Paganism in the Roman Empire, is a little more uh, advanced or detailed it isn't so much a summary of, of, of uh, the various religions, but of questioning assumptions that people bring with them to the study of, of that period, and that trying to argue that scholars today build their ideas exclusively or almost exclusively on, uh, on the literary remains, that is what what the people in the upper echelons of society were writing, and they don't have enough information from, from the common folk more generally. Uh, from that point of view, this book by Macmillan is rather important. And uh, then you go down to uh, Rudolf, Kurt Rudolf, Gnosis, The Nature and History of Gnosticism. Um, along with the book by Philo Ramo, those will be important for that particular topic.
those are the major uh, works. Paganism, page seven of the um, syllabus. First of all, I wanted to say a little bit about what you might call the traditional uh, pagan religions, uh, and in particular the Greco-Roman pantheon. The term pantheon is used as a, as a way of labeling that whole system of gods that uh, the Greeks had, and then you have another set that the Romans had, and they tried to um, uh, you know, equate the one with the other. So Zeus was the main god for the Greeks, and Jupiter was his counterpart among the Romans, and they were more or less equated, and, and, and so on. You've heard you know, throughout your life stories about the gods and this and the other, and the thing to keep in mind is that at the time of the Roman Empire, uh, some fairly significant changes were going on in the way in which these traditional beliefs were being held or practiced, whatever. Um, the common view is that those religions were losing their grip or as far as the, uh, the population uh, was concerned, that uh, these religions were not, uh, were, were becoming less and less important about the first century than they had been before. Now, this is one of the common assumptions that Mac Mullen, whom I mentioned just a moment ago, questions, because he says, look, you're making a judgment about the vitality of these religions based primarily, almost exclusively, on uh, the writings of people who, were, who belonged to the educated classes, who maybe had positions of authority in society, but that's usually the minority of the people. And uh, it is true that for these educated Romans, they were, they were becoming more and more skeptical, skeptical of, of these uh, myths and, and legends and uh, the significance that that had for their own lives. But that doesn't mean that if you went out to the uh, countryside that uh, the people out there were necessarily uh, not uh, involved and sometimes deeply involved in these religions. And, and you do get a sense of that even in the New Testament. Remember when uh, Paul and uh, Barnabas are in, in Asia Minor and in the book of Acts in chapter 14 we're told about uh, the healing of the one man and all of a sudden these people come and, and they call Paul and Barnabas Zeus and Hermes and what have you. Uh, obviously these pagan ideas, these traditional beliefs uh, were very much part of their psyche. But uh, it is still true that uh, for significant portions of the population, uh, those traditional beliefs were uh, becoming less significant. Another detail has to do with the so-called imperial cult. The imperial cult refers to the way in which the emperors uh, began to be viewed as uh, the focus of worship. Now, recall that Augustus was the first emperor and that during his life there was a, a movement to proclaim him as God. Augustus himself didn't want to have much to do with that 
he said, you know, you really should wait until somebody dies before you make him a god. Uh, <laughs> and they did, yeah. Um, some of the, uh, the, the subsequent emperors were not quite that modest, Caligula in particular. And uh, it raised an interesting question because sacrifices were performed in honor of the emperor, and this is what created a real problem for the Jews many times, and then also for the Christians. Uh, however, you also have to keep in mind that for large segments of the population, maybe for most, possibly for all, I mean, I don't know uh, whether anybody could prove anyway, one way or another, but um, how likely is it that the common man or the common woman in, in the Roman Empire would have thought of the emperor truly as a god. You know, I don't know about that. And the many people think that when the Romans uh, offered a sacrifice in honor of the god, for them, this was less a religious ceremony than a patriotic kind of thing. You know, it was like pledging allegiance to the flag of the United States. It was kind of a, of a, uh, of a recognition of um, a civic uh, authority. It, it, it's difficult to be sure. I'm going to lose my legs uh, with these uh, things here. Now, in addition to the traditional pagan religions of the ancient world and the way in which those were associated with the imperial cult, you have two other areas that need to be taken into account. One is what we call Hellenistic philosophy and the other one is Hellenistic religions more specifically. Again, I'm using the term Hellenistic uh, to describe a cultural phenomenon where Greek culture was becoming mixed with the native populations of the Mediterranean world. Uh, although you may want to think of this term Hellenistic more in, in the chronological sense as the period following the classical Greek period. But for me, Hellenistic means something like Greek or Roman, you know, that, that cultural type of, um, of nuance. Philosophy developed during this period in a way that uh, needs to be taken into account. Uh, what we call these post-classical developments. You know, classical philo Greek philosophy is, you know, the teaching of... Uh, those great uh, philosophers of antiquity from Thales to uh, Plato and, and Socrates and so on, uh, people who were interested in, in big, big questions and all kinds of questions. But in the Hellenistic period, in the, in the post-classical period, there was a shift of interest from metaphysics to ethics. Now, this is a, a generalization, you understand. Metaphysics, of course, is a, uh, a rather 
uh, grab bag because it deals with lots of, lots of big questions, the nature of the universe and the nature of being and all these kinds of things. And um, people in the classical period, and even after the classical period, some of them, spent a lot of time speculating about um, those kinds of issues, cosmology and so on. Inevitably, it led individuals to make statements that to us today sound a little strange. For example, when, when some of these philosophers tried to identify is there some um, element that, that unifies the whole of the universe. So for the Greeks, this was really quite an, an, un, an unnerving question, the problem of the one and the many. There's so much diversity that when you think too much about it, uh, it be, you get a little nervous. And, and isn't there some way of bringing unity to all this diversity? And so, you know, you have some people like, oh, well, you know, fire, that is the thing that, that is the one unifying. Every, everything is fire, you see, or air, or water, whatever. Uh, other people would say, no, about the only way that you're going to come up with a unifying principle is by realizing that everything is change. See, everything changes all the time. And then you have other people going to the other extreme and saying, no, nothing changes. That's the only way you're going to come up with something that's going to be meaningful. In fact, nothing even moves if you really want to know. And uh, there was that old uh, philosopher, Zeno, who had a foolproof uh, argument for that. If, uh, if I want to move from here to the wall, I have first I have to get to the midpoint, right? And before I can get to that point, I have to get to the midpoint, and to the midpoint, and to the midpoint, and to the midpoint, ad infinitum. Which means that I never get started. Because before I can move at all, I have to get to a midpoint, you see. And so it is established that nothing moves. Now, the Romans couldn't get excited about that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and um, it's not that they never thought about speculation and cosmology and ontology and all that stuff, but uh, they didn't really spend a lot of time and effort on it. They would just, you know, study a little bit and adopt a viewpoint or that. And uh, see, life was very different now. In the classical period, you have these city-states, uh, rather well-defined, uh, self-standing, small areas. Now, with the Roman Empire, uh, you know, you, everybody is cosmopolitan in a sense. Different questions arise. Uh, some of the political issues discussed by philosophers take on a, a different tone. And uh, it's not that the question of ethics was not of interest to philosophers, prior to this period. It's just that there seemed to be a greater and greater concern with that. Uh, all right, so you believe in the philosophy of Zeno or, or uh, Democritus or whatever, but, but what difference does it make to you in your life, you see? Let's get practical here. Uh, again, that's a generalization. You know, people say the Romans were more practical than the Greeks. Whenever you hear things like that, the Germans are more this and the French and the Italians are more this, then it, you know, there's always a little bit of truth in those kinds of uh, descriptions, but uh, 
Uh, it's not the whole truth. In any case, um, during the uh, period that we're interested in, a number of schools or movements uh, became rather prominent. They were the cynics, for example, movement known as cynicism. Of course, the word cynic and cynicism today have strongly negative connotations that have developed from, um, from that group. Uh, these people were philosophers. But um, part of their philosophy was to try to affect society by behaving in unconventional ways. That's, that's very simplistic, but it's, it's part of what they were all about. You have the Epicureans, the Epicureans. Um, again, you have a problem with the term because to us now to be an Epicurean is probably somebody who is um, not terribly responsible, uh, you know, the, the sensual eating and sex or whatever is what really drives you. That's not completely uh, fair uh, to Epicurus who had a very well designed philosophy. He himself had adopted the metaphysics of Democritus. Democritus was the fellow who argued that uh, he talked about atoms, not in, in, the, um, in the modern sense of the term, but arguing that everything is made up of these indivisible units and that these units operate like a machine so that even your body, your, your existence is like, like, like that of a machine. So when you die, the machine stops working. And for Epicurus, this, this was very important. He felt that the goal of life is to lead a life of happiness and, and uh, tranquility, not to be uh, upset. But if you think, if you start worrying about the afterlife, uh, you're not going to be able to achieve tranquility in this life. So just make up your mind that this life is all that you have to be concerned about. Stop worrying about what happens after death. And now you can devote all of your energies, all of your effort to enjoying this life, to being peaceful. And uh, this was very appealing to certain types. Wonderful. You know, why worry about anything else? Let's just eat when we want to and drink when we want to. Uh, not and he certainly did not mean in, in some, uh, uh, in, uh, you have to be moderate about these things because if you are immoderate, then you lose the very thing that you're after, tranquility and, and peace of mind and so on. The problem, however, is that to pursue the philosophy of Epicurus, you've got to have a lot of time in your, in your hands, which means that you've got to have a lot of money to have a lot of time in your hands. And as a result, uh, the Epicurean uh, way of life was uh, practiced by a very, very small proportion of the population. Uh, then you have uh, the great skeptics. There have always been skeptics. Uh, but uh, these skeptics in the first century, boy, they were really, uh, you know, Socrates, in some respects, could have been um, described as a, as a skeptic in some uh, to some degree, I mean, that's perhaps not totally fair, but he did, uh, you remember how one of his techniques was to uh, make people feel as stupid as possible uh, by asking questions that couldn't be answered. 
And uh, his whole point is, see, I'm smarter than you are, because at least I know that I don't know anything. Uh, the skeptics in the first century were saying, I don't even know that I don't know anything. <laughs> and uh, they used to um, uh, have lots of arguments with some of these other philosophers, because they would speak with such conviction about things that could not be proven. But um, there's another school that I have a particular interest in, and that is Stoicism, and, and that's why I'm giving a special section to that here. Stoicism is significant in a way that the other schools were not, if only because Stoicism continued to, to appeal to people for many, many centuries. Even today, there are people who are Stoics. Most of them don't realize they are, but, but they are. Um, Stoicism, in contrast to the Epicurean philosophy, appealed to many segments of the population, not just the rich or, or the, the, uh, the people in power, but uh, it had a much broader appeal. So that on the one hand, you may have a, um, an emperor, you know, Marcus Aurelius. You've heard of the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Uh, he lived uh, in the second century. And he was a devoted Stoic. With a, there was a strong religious flavor to his meditations. And even today, from time to time, you get these magazines with a, an offer for famous books of antiquity. And, and Marcus Aurelius' meditations are one of the selling points, you see. Um, Seneca, the great Spanish philosopher who became a uh, tutor to Nero, uh, he was a devoted Stoic. And one of the things he told uh, Nero was, you know, you cannot allow yourself to be uh, worried by the things of this life or, or to be terrified by death. In fact, if you have really learn my teaching. Uh, you would be quite content to die when the time comes, and even to commit suicide, if that seems uh, appropriate. And Nero uh, wanted to check whether Seneca really meant this, and said to him, all right, cut your veins. And Seneca cut his veins. And that was it. Uh, stoicism. So you have uh, an emperor. <laughs> Uh, you have a, um, you know, a very powerful uh, politician and, and uh, tutor to the emperor, and you even have a slave. Epictetus is the fellow that I have mentioned there, who became the most popular teacher of Stoic philosophy at the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century. So he is uh, doing his work after the New Testament period, but he, I think, uh, reflects a very important way of thinking that had been going on for probably two or three centuries. Um, Epictetus had been a uh, slave for a good part of his life, and uh, there's one story that goes back to uh, his spirit of slavery when he had already adopted Stoic teachings. And uh, he himself tells a story that as a slave, once he did something naughty, I don't know what it was, and his master was not happy with him. In fact, he was so angry that he just threw him on the floor. 
grabbed a hold of his leg and began twisting his leg. And Epictetus, you know, practicing his philosophy, uh, said, if you keep twisting my leg, you're going to break it. And uh, that only made him matter. And crack! And uh, Epictetus said, I told you you were going to break my leg. <laughs> His whole life, you see, was uh, guided by the principle that you cannot allow things external, and, and the body is an external thing. You cannot allow things external to affect the real you. Now, the real you is, he, he used a, uh, a Greek term to hegemonicon, the ruling principle. You, know, you might call it the soul if you want to. And, uh, and this ruling principle is, is the real you. That's, that's all that matters. And nothing else matters. Now, I want to read to you a few uh, passages from the Discourses of Epictetus. Uh, which uh, Epictetus himself apparently didn't write anything, but he had a, a disciple by the name of Arian, who was a famous became a famous writer. He wrote a biography of Alexander the Great and a few other things, and um, he took very full notes and published the teachings of Epictetus, the Discourses of Epictetus, uh, for posterity. There are two volumes of this in the Low Classical Library that gives you the Greek on the left page and the English on the other, very handy. And um, the reason why I want to spend a little bit of time on this is not only because the teachings, the teachings of Epictetus uh, in general were, were ideas that uh, were very much in the air. For example, when Paul goes to Athens and, and he preaches there. Uh, the vocabulary of Stoicism is reflected sometimes in the uh, epistles of Paul. Paul, remember, was born and raised in Tarsus, and uh, later he ministered in Tarsus for a number of years, and Tarsus was considered the, the, the main uh, center for Stoic teaching in the ancient world, so he would have been very familiar with some of these ideas, some of the language, and so on. Uh, also very important is the fact that because Epictetus was speaking, not actually writing, and Arian is taking down everything quite faithfully, you have the Greek language as it was actually spoken to a much greater degree than would be the case if you pick up almost anything else written in Greek in the first century. This is very important for our understanding of the Greek language. Uh, the, the Greek New Testament is written in a, not in a literary style, most of it, but in, in the more colloquial type, and so Epictetus' discourses are important for that reason as well. Let me read to you a couple of uh, passages that I uh, find very interesting. Um, I got to like Epictetus because when I did my doctoral dissertation, I, I went through his writings to compare the vocabulary with this and the other. And the more I read of him, the more I, I thought, this guy you know, is really an interesting fellow. Um, let me, um, first of all, read a section from uh, book one, chapter 22, where he um, defines the, um, the concept of progress. What does it mean to make progress in life? Is it uh, really a question of, of learning a lot academically? Well, not, not precisely. 
Uh, it has to do with getting a sense on, on our preconceptions. And uh, then he says, what then does it mean to be getting an education? It means to be learning how to apply the natural preconceptions we all have to particular cases, each to the other in conformity with nature. Now, that's a key uh, idea for the Stoics, fusis, or nature, uh, the way that this world works. And further, to make the distinction that some things are under our control while others are not under our control. Again, fundamental Stoic teaching. You cannot make any progress unless you make that distinction. There are some things that are not under your control. They turn out to be almost everything. And there are some things that are under your control. He says, under our control, our moral purpose, that's what I was talking about, the soul, whatever, and all the acts of moral purpose, but not under our control are the body, the parts of the body, possessions, parents, brothers, children, country, in the word, all that with which we associate. It's very basic Stoic teaching. He expands on that, uh, for instance, in chapter 4. Um, here we go. Where then is progress? All right. If anyone among you withdrawing from external things has turned his attention to the question of his own moral purpose, cultivating it and perfecting it so as to make it finally harmonious with nature. That's your goal in life, that your moral purpose, your real you, uh, becomes in line with the functionings of nature, elevated, free, unhindered, untrammeled, faithful, and honorable. And if he has learned that he who craves or shuns the things that are not under his control can be neither faithful nor free, but must himself of necessity be changed and tossed to and fro with them, and must end by subordinating himself to others, those namely who are able to procure or prevent these things that he craves or shuns. That's a long sentence, but what he's saying is, if, you see, if you haven't learned, well, let me put it in, in, in the positive, the way he has it here. If you crave, if you either crave or shun something that is not under your control, then you cannot be free. Because you're going to be subject to somebody else who has control over these things. I'll give you some examples in a moment here. And then finally, we're talking about how do you make progress. When he rises in the morning, if when he rises in the morning, he proceeds to keep and observe all this that he has learned. If he bathes as a faithful man, eats as a self-respecting man, so on and so forth. This is the man who in all truth is making progress. The one who has not traveled at random is such a one. Then, to give you a little bit more concrete information as to what all this means, reading here from uh, chapter 12, says, Instruction consists precisely 
in learning to desire everything exactly as it happens. Think about that for a moment. And how do they happen? As he that ordains them has ordained. You want to be happy. How, well, when are you happy? Well, you're happy when there's something that you want and it happens. Right? So just uh, make a habit of wanting whatever happens. And then you'll always be happy. Because everything that's happening is just what I wanted. Um, stub your toe at home. It happened, right? And you want whatever happens. So you're happy because you stub your toe. So learn to desire each thing exactly as it happens. And then, I think this is the last one that I have. Uh, no, I have a couple more here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is from chapter 18. Um, he is um, complaining about some of his students who themselves complain about people who make life hard for them. And what Epictetus is trying to teach him is, look, if your happiness depends on what other people do, you're in trouble. Uh, you, you can't allow your own equanimity, your uh, moral purpose to be affected by uh, people who have control over things that you don't have control over. And so he says, uh, why then um, you yourself call these people fools, all right? Then why are you angry at fools? Why are we angry? only because we admire the goods of which these people rob us. For, mark you, stop admiring your clothes and you're not angry at the man who steals them. Right? Stop admiring your wife's beauty and you're not angry at her adulterer. Know that a thief or an adulterer has no place among the things that are your own but only among the things that are another's and that are not under your control. If you give these things up and count them as nothing, at whom have you still grown to feel angry? Only at yourself. It says, something similar happened to me also the other day. I keep an iron lamp by the side of my household gods. And on hearing a noise at the window, I ran down. I found that the lamp had been stolen. I reflected that the man who stole it was moved by no unreasonable motive. What then? Tomorrow, I say, you will find one of earthenware. Indeed, a man loses only that which he already has. So if I have already determined that I don't have anything, no one can rob me of anything. You see. One last one here. Um, what is it then that disturbs and bewilders the multitude? Is it the tyrant and his bodyguards who make life miserable for people? No. How is that possible? It is not possible that that which is by nature free, that's your moral purpose, should be disturbed or thwarted by anything but itself. It is a man's own judgments that disturb him. For when the tyrant says to a man, 
I will chain your leg, meaning if you don't obey me or something like that, the man who has set a high value on his leg replies, Nay, have mercy on me. While the man who has set a high value on his moral purpose replies, If it seems more profitable to you to do so, chain it. Don't you care? No, I don't care. I will show you that I am master. How can you be my master? Zeus has set me free. Or do you really think that he was likely to let his own son be made a slave? You are, however, master of my dead body. Take it. You mean then that when you approach me, you will not pay attention to me? No, I pay attention only to myself. But if you wish me to say that I pay attention to you, I tell you that I do so, but only as I pay attention to my pot. This guy was too much. Um, you see, the only thing that really disturbs you is your judgment. It is not that somebody may chain your leg or even cut your leg. It is your judgment that somebody cutting your leg is bad. But if your leg is not that important to you, then your judgment will uh, be different. And so you will not be disturbed in your moral purpose. It's not that you're not allowed to moan if somebody hits you. That's okay, he says. But moan only on the outside of you. You, know, you cannot moan in the inside of you. That has to be totally immune from, from these kinds of things. Now, uh, one of the reasons why I think it's useful to be familiar with this kind of thinking is that in the past, there have been a number of uh, students of the Bible who have, uh, in their opinion, seen some parallels or some resemblances between the teachings of the New Testament and the teachings of Stoicism. For example, uh, some people have drawn parallels between the letter to the Philippians on the one hand and the, and the letters of Seneca because they think that there are some parallels in the way in which certain things are expressed. You know, Paul says, be anxious for nothing, you know. No, that's a good stoic uh, idea, not, not getting upset about anything. And uh, there are many, many other examples of that sort. But what people or some people don't realize is that uh, it is true that there are some superficial parallels and it is true that, you know, you read Epictetus and you get a lot of good advice. I mean, what is the sense of, of getting upset by things that you cannot control? And a little bit of uh, self-control and, and getting perspective on things. Um, you know, the other day, I was minding my own business, driving down Edge Hill Road. And um, I was in the right lane that says you're supposed to go straight here. And the right lane, only supposed to turn right. And somebody came on the right. And... Um, when the light turned green, pressed the gas, and, and uh, cut me off. Well, it didn't cut me off that bad because I was just... And I got to thinking, you know, this guy did me no harm whatsoever. I mean, I'm not going to get home one second later because of that. He didn't hit my car, nothing like that. So why do I feel so <laughs> upset at this guy? Uh, and I thought about Epictetus. <laughs> and uh, I said, there's no point in it. If, if I allow this stupid uh, uh, type of behavior to get me upset, then, you see, I am letting this guy do something to me that he shouldn't have to do to me. So there's a lot of wisdom in some of the things that Epictetus says. But 
at the most fundamental level, there is a chasm between the New Testament and, and Stoicism. And I'll tell you why. For Epictetus, suffering is not supposed to exist. It's almost like a denial of evil. You deny the evil of this world. He goes so far as to say that if someone kidnaps your baby, you shouldn't let that upset you because a baby is something external to you. The New Testament, in contrast, not only acknowledges <laughs> the reality of evil, but it faces it much more directly than any, any other religion does. And of course the reason is that the Bible doesn't have to hide in the sand, if you will. Uh, the believer doesn't have to act as though these things were not happening or they, or they were not affecting me as deeply as they are affecting me. Because the believer knows that there's an answer to these things. And Paul has no misgivings whatever about saying to people, cry with those who cry. And, uh, and you have uh, passage after passage in, in the Bible, both the Old and New Testament, acknowledging the reality of suffering. And uh, the answer is not that these things don't exist. The answer is that when you place these things before the throne, you know that there is someone who is sovereign over these things and can bring good out of them. Um, don't fall into the pattern, you know, I think there's some people, some Christians who act a little bit stoic, you know, you fall down the steps and say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. I don't really think you should praise the Lord for falling down the stairs. Now, it's okay to praise the Lord that He can use you falling down the stairs for some other purpose. But don't make it sound as though falling down the stairs is not something bad. It's terrible. Uh, so, uh, keep Epictetus in check. We'll get back to this tomorrow.